Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We're recording this live uh, at the Charlotte Museum of History. It's the first live podcast we've done here. Uh, the Charlotte Museum of History is the location of the oldest standing home in Mecklenburg County, the 18th century Hezekiah Alexander House. And it was built just prior to the Revolutionary War. And for you believers out there, it was built just prior to the signing of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. Um, I'm here with Scott Hewler, whose latest book is A Delicious Country. Scott, we've got an audience today. What do you think? About that? I love an audience. <laughs> So here's what we have planned for today. We're going to do a, uh, it's about an hour-long episode. We've got 40 minutes of readings and conversations. The Sort of the brand of Charlotte Reader's podcast is that we, we, as we say, we want authors to give voice to the written words, so they read from their work, and then we talk about their work. So you get a little bit of flavor of what goes into the work, but you also hear the work itself. We're going to have about 20 minutes where we explore Scott's writing life, and during that time, we're also going to open it up to questions from the audience. We have technical support today by Brian Baltashevitz, head of the Queen City Podcast Network, to my left here. That's a network that uh, we're a part of. It's a collection of locally based, locally produced podcasts where you can listen to what's on the go in Charlotte. You can find everything you need to know about this show at charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn at the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library site um, and wherever you get your podcasts. So if everyone's ready, everyone ready? Everyone ready? Well, let's hear you out there. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. All right. Okay, they're ready. Let's cue the music, Brian. In today's episode, we meet Scott Hewler, author of A Delicious Country, Rediscovering the Carolinas Along the Route of John Lawson's 1700 Expedition. And who is John Lawson, you might ask? Well, he was a young English gentleman who left home in 1700 looking for an adventure and who nine years after his quest for knowledge published a very popular book at the time called A New Voyage to Carolina. Lawson landed in Charleston where he began his two-month trip through the backcountry, much of it along the old trading path, which ran north and south along the same path we now call Trine Street in Charlotte. Lawson did pass through Charlotte before ending up in what is now called Little Washington near the coast, where he met a girl and as they say, settled down and where he became an important public figure and surveyor general to the colony. Scott Hewler is not a licensed surveyor, I don't think, more of a surveyor of words, and why he decided to travel by canoe and in foot along the same 1700 route by John Lawson, and what he discovered on his adventure is the subject of today's podcast. Scott opens the show with a reading that demonstrates how he stumbled across Lawson's journey and offers some speculation about the man and why and how he took this trip. I first stumbled across Lawson's journey while seeking information about that history of my own piece of land in Raleigh. A relative newcomer to the place I had started calling home, I searched the historical record for accounts of the region before European settlement. I encountered Lawson's story and was amazed, less that he took the journey than that the journey seemed so largely forgotten. He bestrode the backcountry, treated with the natives, wrote history, made scientific observations, founded towns. Given his various contributions, he ought to be considered Carolina's William Penn. He ought to have a museum. His portrait ought to hang in schoolrooms. Yet, no. I began looking into Lawson's life, but found, outside of his own book, only the barest biography. 
one obstacle to knowing Lawson is his mysterious British origins. We have no accurate recording of his birth or even agreement on his family background. Biographies vary based on conjecture and incomplete information. One interpretation included in the preface to a 1967 edition of A New Voyage to Carolina has him born in 1665 to one Andrew Lawson in London and apprenticed to an apothecary in 1675, after which we don't hear much until his book resumes the narrative. Another belief is that he was a member of the Lawsons of the Brough Hall, Yorkshire, though sons of baronets usually leave more of a paper trail than this fellow did. In a bio biological sketch from a 1951 edition of Lawson's book, historian Francis Latham Harris says, he appears to have flashed like a meteor across our ken, leaving behind him only this illuminating record of his presence and the tragic memory of his death. It's likely, however, that Lawson was just looking for opportunity and that the journey was less Lewis and Clark than road trip. That is, Lewis and Clark, a century later, had the backing and support of the U.S. government. Lawson had nothing of the sort. From what I can tell, and I am backed up by knowledgeable people on this, Lawson probably overheard some traders talking in a tavern and begged to come along. Maybe he was introduced to them more formally. In any case, what we know is what Lawson tells us. On December the 28th, 1700, I began my voyage for North Carolina from Charlestown, being six Englishmen in company with three Indian men and one woman, wife to our Indian guide. They left by single canoe, an enormous dugout cypress trunk, and paddled along the coast to the mouth of the Santee River, some 45 miles to the northeast. There, they headed upriver, abandoning the canoe after a day and continuing on foot. The company varied as the journey continued. The Indian guides came and went. English traders continued or dropped out. Others joined. When Lawson emerged at the Pamlico Sound some 57 days later, he had interacted with Huguenot settlers and had met with the Siwi, Santee, Sugary, Watery, Catawba, Waxhaw, Okanichi, and Tuscarora Indians. He stayed in their wigwams, ate their food, trusted their guides, and he emerged with their stories, for some of which he is the only source in the world. Scott Hewler is the author of seven books of nonfiction. He's written on everything from the death penalty to bikini waxing, from NASCAR racing to the stealth bomber. There were such newspapers as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Los Angeles Times, and such magazines as Backpacker, Fortune, and ESPN. His books have been translated into five languages. He's been a staff writer for the Philadelphia Daily News and the Raleigh News and Observer, and a staff reporter and producer for Nashville Public Radio. He was the founding and managing editor of the Nashville City Paper and has taught at such colleges as the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Scott was the 2011 Piedmont Laureate in Creative Nonfiction. 2014-2015 Night Science Journalism Fellow at MIT and currently works as a senior writer at Duke Magazine. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, I got to be careful because I've been reading your book and I've been talking to you. And if I call you John during this thing, you know, it will actually, not be the first time because you actually happened. because you actually you were in John's shoes. Right? Well, and in fact, one newspaper story <laughs> while I walked through town, I can't remember which town it was, talked about what I was doing. And then they had a picture of me and underneath it, it said, said John Lawson. Lawson. <laughs> so I was like, OK, I got what right. I need to get. Right. There you go. Uh, so let's, let's continue with this, who was John Lawson for a moment. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the short life of Lawson and what he accomplished apart from this two-month journey. Well, what we know is that he was a young guy in London growing up and looking to make a name for himself. He wanted, he wanted some attention. He wanted adventure. Yeah. He wanted adventure and he wanted scientific adventure. And I think that's really important. We believe that he went to Gresham College where the uh, Royal Society, which is basically the world's first scientific society was uh, functioning at that time. And I believe that he looked at the members of the Royal Society the way Mark Twain looked at steamboat pilots or the way people <laughs> of my generation looked at astronauts and say, oh, oh, that 
and that, that I will have that. Yeah. And um, and so he wanted to be part of this whole science thing going on. And he was looking to do something. He tells us in, in his book that he considered going to the uh, the Grand Jubilee, which was basically a state fair that the Pope threw every 25 years or so. Because guess what? It was the 1600s. What else did people have to do yeah. with their they time? They couldn't listen to the podcast. Right. It gave them yeah. something to do. Yeah. And... Um, so, so, so he has this two-month journey, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking right. about today. Um, but he had a tragic end too, and you foreshadow that in your book. Can you? Talk, I mean, because there's a very different happenings in 1700 from 1709 in terms of the interaction between the Native Americans and the English, because they keep coming, they keep coming, and the Tuscarora Wars come along. Right? right, exactly. Lawson is the first casualty of the Tuscarora War. Lawson, who's perspective on the Indians is is almost unique among his cohort who tr who respected the Indians who ad who admired the Indians who trusted the Indians and who was in turn treated very nicely by the Indians ends up being killed by the Tuscaroras because as as you say settlers kept coming and kept coming and the Indians the Tuscarora in fact wanted to move away but North Carolina wouldn't even let him and so they finally said if we can't go we can't live like this, so we're going to have to stand and fight. And Lawson, at the beginning of what was to be another journey, stumbles into a uh, war party and is eventually killed. Yeah, and but you, 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 it's interesting, in your book here on page 204, you, you reference Billy Baldwin, writer, poet, guide, and personage in McClellanville, who kayaked with you on the intercoastal waterway during this journey. And he summed up Lawson's life uh, in one sentence, or two yeah. sentences, right? What did he say? I'll read that. Billy Baldwin, writer, poet, guide, and personage in McClellanville, who kayaked with us on the Intercoastal Waterway during the first week of our journey, may in one story have hit closest to the mark in summarizing Lawson's life and death. He was a developer, Baldwin quoted a friend's description of Lawson, and he got what they all deserve. <laughs> <laughs> and so, general belief, mind you, is that they poked him full of, uh, of pine splinters set them on fire and had him dance to death while he burned like a candle so you know was, some homeowners associations might want to borrow from that when the developers <laughs> come knocking right yeah you know, want to build that uh, big building next door so let's talk about the time period just a second life in the carolinas at this time so give us kind of a view of what we might have been looking at in 1700 in the time that lawson set foot in charleston until he became that first casualty in 1709 well when when lawson came to charleston town as it was called then there was you know somewhere between 1200 and 2000 people which made it one of the five largest cities in uh british north america so it was a tiny place but to the people who lived in the farms around it it was new york city and he talks a lot about it about what a sort of nice place it was he talks about the education there and he talks about how well situated it is for trade that is he talked about charleston the way people in Charlotte or people in Raleigh talk about their towns now. Oh, we have an educated populace and it's, you know, multimodal transit, all the same kind of crap that we talk about now. They talked about that. <laughs> and so it But it was, didn't take long to get outside of that environment right. and, and, and to where there's absolutely nothing but Indians. Right. Right. No, he the the land surrounding was uh, the, the Carolinas, which were still a single colony at the time were still populated mostly by the remain the remains of Indian tribes. And his long walk ended up walking through all of those Indian tribes and, and his stories are, are unbelievable. Okay. I, I kind of got an idea as to why Lawson did this, but I'm a little confused as to why Scott Hewlett <laughs> did this. Okay. What what possessed you to get in a canoe and to put on your hiking boots, how many miles is this? It was about between 550 and 600 miles All right, total. Tell us what motivated that. Well, I stumbled across Lawson, as I think I mentioned in the early reading, when I was doing a, another book and I wanted to understand the history of my own little piece of land. And I thought, well, Lawson walked through here. Okay, where's the book that takes Lawson's observation and spikes them into modern Carolina place names. Well, that book didn't exist. You don't need me to tell you that as a writer, that's like the best day of your life. Oh boy, <laughs> I need a book. The book doesn't exist. I know what I'm doing for the next 10 years. But 
that's why I wanted to do it because what could be more fun? It's cool. It's but, obviously valuable. But this is not your everyday nonfiction book project. Right. I mean, it's one thing to go to the library and pull all the old books off the shelf and take notes and produce something. You went out into the field, right? Right. And 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 you have a day job and you got a family. Well, at the time I did this was my day job. Okay. So well, you still had a family. I did. And and they were <laughs> still do. <laughs> yeah. You and, can see you can look it up. So so and this path that you took, um, and you say on Lawson's you got this website and it's worth checking out, uh, listeners, Lawson Trek dot com because it has interactive maps and it has information about the book and his journey. But in it you say this was less about retracing than honoring. Can you flesh that out a minute? Well, that's right. That's, I mean, there are two things to say. One is that, as I say, it's obvious why I would want to do it. What could be more fun? But a second reason to do it was a scientific reason in that, just like we look back at Thoreau's uh, notes from Concord, and now so we know that uh, spring used to come 10 days earlier in Concord than it does now, or 10 days later, I should say, and, and which is shocking, and so we're learning, I would have a second data set to compare to Lawson's data set. It was a sort of scientific thing. But what I wanted to do was less slavishly retrace every footstep of Lawson's than do what Lawson did. Lawson set out to have a look around and tell us what he saw. And he, went on a, he went on a walkabout, as they say. Right, uh, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. Lawson went out to see who's out there, what's going on, who lives here? What do they, what do they grow? What eats what? You know, how do how do things work around here? And so I set out to do exactly the same thing: is walk through the Carolinas of 2014 and 15 and say, who lives here? How do they make their livings? What grows here? What eats what? But you didn't do all walking. You first got in a canoe, right? Just like Lawson <laughs> did. I jumped in a canoe, right. and, and um, the wind started blowing, and you headed out to sea, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, Lawson worried about that a lot. And uh, my first sort of, I, the first person who kind of helped me with the physical action of this trek gave me a canoe. She ran a nature outfitter down in Charleston, put me in a canoe, gave me a satellite phone, gave me a flare gun. She was Where'd really, she think you were going? She thought <laughs> that I was the kind of knucklehead. I mean, I had called her up and I said, I'll like to rent a canoe, please. And she said, well, what is it that you plan to do? And I told her all of this stuff. And there was this like 20 second silence on the phone. <laughs> and she said, okay, I got this. She put me in the canoe. She put all this stuff to save my life when, as she was sure I would do, I got swept out to sea. She found places for me to camp all the way up the intercoastal waterway. She eventually canoed with me a day. She found me guides. It was amazing what Kathy Livingston did for me. So as we lay the foundation here for where you went and what you did, uh, for those who are listening in podcast land, uh, go to lawsontrek.com. You can find the map. But those who are here today, Scott brought a map with him. It's to Scott's right, your, your left. And uh, kind of tell us, Scott, where you went here and where he went. Well, I always want to do like the John Cleese thing about the left peak of Mount Everest. You know, like, <laughs> oh, wait, there's this one. Okay, so what uh, Lawson did is he started in Charleston and he paddled up the, what I used was the Intracoastal Waterway, which made life a lot easier than the, uh, the tidal creeks that Lawson had to make his way in. And when they got to the mouth of the Santee River, which we have ruined, but in Lawson's day was one of the most important rivers on the East Coast, they, I think they thought they were gonna paddle up the river. And I think after about half a day, they were like, this is not gonna work. And they got out of the canoe and they started walking. <laughs> kind of like you did. I think. Right. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It was just like, that's, that's crazy pains. And um, then walked through the swamps and Lawson met the Huguenot settlers there but made his way up along, pretty much along the path of the Santee River, crossing the Santee and heading up to where Camden is now, and then up to where Lancaster is now, up to where Charlotte is now, and then following the trading path. Um, it's no surprise that the trading path follows the railroad, follows I-85. It has roadness. It, it goes where it makes sense for the road to so go. So if anybody wonders why Charlotte is where it is. Right because two important paths crossed there. Right. And Lawson met interesting people there, you know, Catawbas and Indian traders. 
And so then he follows a training path up to Hillsborough, where he is told that there are Seneca raiders in the area and that going further north risks more interaction with the Seneca raiders. Nobody wants more interaction with Seneca raiders, so he headed straight to the coast and uh, ended up in what you and I would call Little Washington, what the Indians probably called the place where that British guy lives with his daughter. Then he said, I, I think pleased with the surroundings or something, I chose to remain. So you would think that this would take someone a long period of time in 1700, uh, longer than someone in this day and time, but it actually took Lawson only a couple of months to do this, right? Right. Well, Lawson, the, the closest person who even knew who he was, was 5,000 miles away in London. So for Lawson to disappear into the bush and, and then pop up like a whack-a-mole in little Washington two months later, no problem. Lawson paddled away from Charleston with unexpected friends on December 28, 1700, and was taken in and cared for by every group of settlers and Indians he met and finished it with generous hosts near Washington on February 23, 1701. We think, even before those sloppy final entries, he gets a little cavalier about days. I started mine with vast and unexpected generosity in Charleston, met a constant parade of generosity, support, and kindness during a year on the way, and finished the outdoor portion of this project with yet another outpouring of help unlooked for and enormous assistance at Bath. I stepped into a canoe in Charleston on October 12, 2014, and stepped out of one in Bath on September 26, 2015. So what, what was the feeling like uh, when you landed? Were you conquering hero, grateful passenger of history, or just tired and glad to be home? When I landed in Bath, I was grateful dad of two still living children. <laughs> because, because you tell that story in your book. Yeah, yeah we had, uh, you know, Lawson finished in Little Washington, as did I, but the people at Historic Bath were very friendly to this enterprise, as were so many historic enterprises. And they said, would you like to paddle up? the Bath Creek and sort of land and we'll sort of applaud for you. And I said, well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> and so I got my kids to come and we jumped in a canoe and it was an enormously windy day and it was fine coming down the Duck Creek from a friend's house. And then we started going down the Pamlico into the teeth of the wind. Forget it. We were getting killed. And worse, I have uh, at the time, uh, I guess a 10 year old, sitting in front and he's more sail than paddle. And, um, and so the canoe keeps turning sideways. And then I have a seven-year-old sitting in the middle holding out to the board going, this is so fun. And the canoe's going up and down and up and down. And I'm like, this is so not fun. You know, if you die, mom's going to be so mad. That's you know, um, all you're worried about. Yeah, well, I was yeah, yeah, yeah. I was terrified, and so we just we dragged ourselves over to the side, called our friends. Our friends moved us in, and I was like, I think we're done. And they're like, Oh no, you're not. We're putting you back in the water at the foot of directly at the foot of Bath Creek, and you're paddling up. And so we did that, and we had to dig and fight wind so hard for you know 15 minutes, and all these people standing out there in Bath watching us, and we're kind of going this way and that way and this way, but we finally dug our way through and took it advantage of a momentary breath in the wind and we made our way and I was just so relieved because it was like those are my babies you know I know everybody's wearing life jackets and we're probably fine but those are my babies so we're yeah. going to get to more about what you saw on the journey but I'm still a little curious the logistics here of this thing because as I was reading the book I'm, I'm trying to think to myself I mean you're walking through areas that are commercially developed you're walking through some areas that maybe haven't changed a lot. There's still swamps. There's still water, mm -hmm. maybe more polluted now than it was then. Sometimes but, not. Yeah, but but some weariness had to set in as well. But you're also camping beside places of business and your Charlotte Motor Speedway. And I mean, what? Right. It was, it how, was. <laughs> how, just, how did you do this? Yeah. Well, that was one of the most fun things was that I had originally thought, you know, for, for the better part of the century, we've had a pretty good idea. I think forever we've known in general where Lawson went. For the better part of the century, we've had a pretty good idea where he went. And I was just going to take this pretty good idea and work with it. Uh, my friend Val Green, who is in the audience here, ended up, 
he spent decades studying loss. And, and so he was able to, to send me pretty much step for step where Lawson went. So I was much closer than I had hoped, but I had to do it in little segments. And, you know, I would do, I did the, the, the canoe trip and that was a week. And then I went home and took a breath and then I would come back out and I would uh, hike with a friend for three days through the swamp. And, uh, the, or I would, you know, park my car where I wanted to finish, have somebody drop me to where I was going to start that segment and then hike towards my car for two days. And I would, I slept in church basements. I slept in church pews. I slept on people's front porches. I slept even on one memorable day. I just found a spot by the side of the road and threw down a tent and but, slept on but, the ground. But like Lawson, who, you know, the Native Americans were, they, they took him in. They, they, they befriended him. They provided him with food and drink and, and directions along the way. You say the same thing in your book that uh, you met people, people who've been here after the Native Americans, the, the, you met Native Americans as well. They also took you in and pointed you in the right direction. So it, the hospitality, at least in the Carolinas. Uh, it was incredible. Yeah. It was, it, I, w I would even say it was the point. It was the entire point of this enterprise. And it was staggering. There were moments where the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I, I had uh, walked through, I had done the canoe portion and done a little walking in the swamps. And I uh, got an email because I did what Lawson would have done, right? Had Lawson had Instagram, Lawson would have used Instagram, I'm sure of it. But I used Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and I had a website and all of this kind of stuff. And I, I finished one segment and I got an email from someone saying, well, um, we live in Jamestown, uh, you know, the original Huguenot settlement. If you haven't left, would you be interested in seeing the site of the original settlement? I was like, would I not? This is why I'm out here. And we, you know, and so I ended up sitting and having bunt cake and coffee with a man whose great, 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 great grandfather was born two miles away from where he lives today. Now, that's Carol. The Carolinas are considered a very sticky region, if you know what that means. People don't move away. People tend to stay in much greater numbers than they do in other parts of the world. That is some stickiness right there. Mm -hmm. That if you're still within an hour's walk of where your, you know, great 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 grandfather. Well, well, well speaking speaking of sticky, once you made the turn at Hillsborough and you're headed to the coast, you're running out of gas a bit. And you've got a little reading here on page 163 um, that, that demonstrates that a little bit. You said Lawson also got tired because he stopped keeping his copious notes at this point in his trip as he did earlier. Uh, so how about reading that for you? Yeah, yeah, people say Lawson falls off the map after Hillsborough, it's very true. In the early days of his journey, Lawson devotes page after page of loving description to every Indian tribe, every funeral custom, every change in terrain or type of rock. Here, he simply mentions pine trees or a pocosin and carries on. Early in his journal, he often spends two or three days, two or three pages telling the stories of a single day, the Tuesday or Wednesday that dot the margins to help the reader hanging in space. Now, nearing the end of his journey, he's clearly grown weary. The last 12 days of his trip occupy three pages total, the italic days looking in the margins like ladders. For my own part, I could not say this was difficult to understand, and I noticed it especially as I walked into the triangle region of Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill, my home territory. Perhaps it was dragging my sore feet and heavy backpack along one more damned asphalt road with no sidewalk, leaping into the bushes when some texting driver or wide utility truck left me no choice. Perhaps it was hitting more development and seeing the dispiriting plethora of choked five-lane highways and big box stores and malls and five-story stick-built condo developments popping up in this territory like toast on Sunday morning. I stopped in one outdoor supplier to get a strap for my glasses, which slipped off my face from sweat, and inside encountered a wall of guns for sale, pink shirts reminding girls that guns were for them too, and heard country music singing the praises of small-town life. Having been walking through collapsing and dying small towns for the better part of a year that gave the lie to that song, I got the willies from the whole place. When we come back, we're going to focus on what two explorers centuries apart experienced, what was different and what was the same. So stay with us. 
Hey listeners, I'm here at the Robinson Spangler Carolina Room, Uptown Branch, Charlotte Mecklen Library. I'm here with historian and resident Tom Hatchett. Tom, how you doing? Pretty good. We got some food for you today. We got uh, two helpings. I see that we got books about food. Tell us about this first book. Um, called Holy Smoke, the Big Book of North Carolina Barbecue, uh, written by an actual PhD, John Shelton Reed, over at Chapel Hill, along with Dale Volberg Reed. And you, need, you need Kim. a PhD to write about uh, barbecue. Well, um, <laughs> when you have a PhD writing about it, they talk not just about the food, but about how barbecue got to be in North mm. Carolina. We've got two traditional flavors of barbecue, Eastern and Western, the, the Lexington style. There are also a whole bunch of new barbecues popping in with the, the thick, rich red sauce. That's a new thing here. And then if you go just a little bit south of Charlotte, you get into the mustard-based sauce yeah, of mustard. South Carolina. <laughs> and there are reasons for that. It reflects our culture. Well, you know, probably wars have been started over, you know, whose barbecue's better, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I ain't going to get into that. <laughs> All right, so another, another book here, Hungry for Home. Oh, Amy Rogers put this together. It was published by the Public Library several years ago. It's still worth going back to. It is uh, stories of food and recipes, mostly by Charlotteans, old and new. If you want to get a sense of how Charlotte, the Charlotte area, the Carolinas are changing, Hungry for Home is a delicious way to start. Well, I'm getting hungry just looking at these books, but uh, hey, listeners, if you want to find out more about, you know, how to feed your appetite uh, for books and food, check out uh, check out the library. They're, they're how many branches? 20 branches in Charlotte. And then you got this great resource with the Robinson Spanger Carolina Room. Tom, thanks for these tips. Thank you. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice. Because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. We're back with Scott Hewler, author of A Delicious Country, Rediscovering the Carolinas Along the Route of John Lawson's 1700 Expedition. Now, Scott, uh, before the break, we talked about your interaction with the the Native people. We've got a little reading here that I think that demonstrates this on page 26. Well, first of all, you had some interaction as well uh, with descendants of the Native American tribes, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Incredible interaction. Yeah. And, and, you talked a little bit about uh, their efforts to find their identity or to connect to it and the struggles they have with us recognizing their history, right? Right. Yeah. Um, shall I read? Yeah, go ahead and read, okay. and then we'll talk about that. Right. In Lawson's time, two narratives seemed to compete for primacy regarding the New World. First was that North America was in essence empty, a virgin country awaiting European settlers. The other was that the Indians were savages to be swept aside. Lawson saw things differently. He recognized that the Indians had been treated terribly by the European settlers. They are really better to us than we are to them, he says later in his book. We reckon them slaves in comparison to us and intruders as often as they enter our houses or hunt near our dwellings. But if we will admit reason to be our guide, she will inform us that these Indians are the freest people in the world and so far from being intruders upon us that we have abandoned our own native soil to drive them out and possess theirs. What of those other stories of Indians that Lawson's contemporaries had heard, which portrayed them as simpletons or savages? Those that generally write histories of this new world, Lawson says, are such as interest, preferment, and merchandise drew thither, and know more of that people than I do of the Laplanders. Lawson's tales of the Indians portray, as does his story of the Siwis, the ragged end of a dying, once great civilization that spread across continents. Lawson, at the time of his journey, was just beginning to learn of the Indians. During my journey and research, I, too, learned things about the Indians, their treatment at the hands of the Europeans, and the history of their descendants that I had heard no place else. So, Scott, this, this is not a political show, but as, I, as I'm listening to you read, I can't help but think um, that in 1700, uh, us white people, we were the visitors, we were the foreigners, we were the ones coming to this country. We were the refugees. There was no wall, right? Right. There was no wall. Right. We yeah. Were. Yeah. And we were we were intruding upon lands the peoples that inhabited for how many years? Millennia. Millennia. Yeah. 
talk about for a minute um, your interaction. You spoke with, you had one encounter with, uh, I think it was the vice chief, Peggy Scott of the Santee tribe. And I think one of the things she said was that we're the only race to have to prove who you are. And she was really tied to Lawson that maybe Lawson kind of gave her yeah, back my, her history. Talk about that. My interaction with Peggy Scott of the uh, vice chief, as you say, of the Santee tribe was one of the great conversations of my lifetime. Um, Peggy agreed to meet me, was glad to help, just as her 300 years ago, her, her ancestors had, had done for Lawson. She met me at a little cabin and we, uh, we were going to take a walk, but she wasn't up for walking. And so we sat and talked and I tried to explain to her who Lawson was. And she said, oh, I know who Lawson is. My Lawson is never, I, I, I never don't know where my Lawson is. I said, well, tell me why that is. What do you mean? And she said, well, she explained to me growing up as the third group in a racially binarily segregated culture where she went to school and if a white child needed a drink of water, there's a drinking fountain. If a black child needed a drink of water, well, here's a kind of crappy drinking fountain. If an Indian child needed a drink of water, the principal had to come with a paper cup. How much more erased from a culture can you be? And so she eventually left school, but then eventually came back to it and went to college took a history course where she read Lawson, and here's Lawson speaking of her ancestors with respect, with admiration, with decency, with genuine love and affection. And she said, Lawson gave me back my history. And as I tell you now, the hair stands up on the back of my neck. It was astonishing to feel this connected to someone whose experience was so powerful. And Scott, um you not only saw a connection to people whose ancestors had been here for years, but you saw uh, a connection to a change in the populations. For example, just as the Indian populations were disappearing through disease and conquest and so forth, you were looking at towns whose businesses and main streets were changing. And you talk about that in your book. And that was one of the connections you made, I think, uh, on page 81 of the book. Uh, you've got a short read there from that page that starts with empty houses. How about reading that for us and then let's talk about that idea. Right. Empty houses. The town of Jamestown was little more than a gas station and a church. The little crossroads of Horatio with its store was barely there, and Haygood simply was not. The farms the people once worked belonged to corporations now, most of the jobs done by machines. We were getting our first sense that, like Lawson, we were seeing not a culture in flower. We were seeing the end of something. Shells like those Lawson had seen on Capers Island or the ghost trees of Boneyard Beach or the empty town of Allendaw, the silent record of a vanished tribe. The life that sustained them was gone. You had a lot of time to think, Scott out there in the tent all by yourself. When you think of that, as you did on those nights alone, what, 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 how do you feel about that? Well, there was no way of avoiding that. Just as you say, as, as, as Lawson recognized, he wasn't seeing native culture. He was seeing the ragged end of something that 200 years ago had been amazing. And now, you know, tribes were trying to band together and figure out how to make a go of it. It was whatever was left, let's try to make a go of this. I felt like I was seeing the exact same thing that I'm seeing, you know, think about it, you know, 100 years before Lawson, he walked through and, you know, it would have been thriving Indian populations. 50 years before me, it would have been Post-war prosperity, everybody understood the world, everybody understood what was happening, everybody understood what was next. 50 or 100 years after Lawson, it's full on buckle shoes and knee breeches and perukes, colonial America. He could not have predicted that. He could not have known that was coming. Does anybody in this room want to predict what's coming 50 or 100 years from now? I was going to ask you, Scott, if you've thought about that, you know, if someone recreates your journey 200 years from now, what are they going to see? Um, I would genuinely, I would think that they would find an unlivable hellscape. I mean, I, as the planet warms and as we fiercely refuse to act, everything that I see 
tells me that within 100 or 150 years, any place south of the current Canadian border is going to be uninhabitable. All right, well, on that happy note, uh, let's talk about the plant life and the animal <laughs> life and the rivers and the streams and the archaeology for a minute. I'm, I'm just curious, are you, were you kind of an amateur botanist because you described a lot of plant life on this trip? Or did you take an app with you? What did you do? I asked a lot of questions, and Instagram turns out to be a great... I, I, I would take a picture and share, what's this? <laughs> and then people would tell me, and then I would say in my blog, whoa, I encountered, you know, reindeer moss. And, you know, I was like, oh, I'm so smart. I know so many things. It's better to know people than things I have learned as a reporter. That's my entire stock and trade is getting smart people to explain things to me and then explaining them to other people and acting like I figured it out. That's my job description. And, what, and we can't really go through all the, 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 that's why the books are for sale over here to the side. And, and for those that are listening through the podcast, you can get them at Park Road Books, independent bookstores, online, whatever. But give us a few highlights, a couple of examples of some of the differences that Lawson thinks Lawson saw in these various areas and and what you see today. And, and before you do it, one thing comes to mind, because there's a sign out the Charlotte Museum of History out here to John Lawson. And I went down and read it for the podcast. And one of the things it talks about is the fact when he came through Charlotte, which we're going to get to on the show here, he went pigeon hunting because there were so many carrier pigeons at that time that they were just like shooting pigeons in a barrel, I guess, whatever. But that was one of the things that changed too. The carrier pigeon became extinct. Right. Lawson describes pigeons landing on tree boughs to such a degree that the bough collapses and falls to the ground. He talks about going to Indian uh settlements and they would have like a big barrel of of pigeon grease you know and they would spread it on on beans and eat it it was great it's like butter on toast and um so what else what, what else comes to, you, to your mind is different then than now that you saw well um do you know roads oh yeah you to get to the roads they didn't have roads no pavement right <laughs> and when i stopped and talked to some people in a barber shop and i said I explained what I was doing as I did. You meet people and you explain what you're doing. I, I said, what do you think would be the biggest difference from 300 years ago if you if somebody popped up here and they thought for a minute and they said, roads, I think the pavement, I think. And I think that's really accurate. I think that a person popping up from 300 years ago would see these cars and these roads most with no sidewalks, most roads with no sidewalks because people have wheels now, and it, they would be stunned that and how much time we spend either indoors or in our cars or on those roads but we roads. dammed rivers and streams and that's changed the landscape too that's changed everything right and uh i i walked past uh two lakes that the army corps of engineers built in south carolina that every single person involved with it agrees was the worst decision that anybody ever made lakes marion and moultrie down there that the corps got this idea that combining two rivers in the same watershed would be smart, which is, of course, crazy town. And then they figured out that it didn't work. So did they did they blow up the dam? No, they just dug another canal. They're like beavers. They just want to build something. Let's build something else. That that didn't work. Let's build some more. So so we are we've got a, we've got a couple of reads here in a row that we're going to do. Um, one's walking into Charlotte. Another one speaks to the beauty of the land. And we are going to have a little little short piece on the roads for a second. But it, it, when you think about this journey, and you're in a canoe and you're walking past swamps and you're going through forest and you're in fields, then you show up at a place like Charlotte. There's not many places you can hide. You got to walk down Lancaster Highway to get in, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start on page 121 here. Okay. Walking into Charlotte up South Boulevard, you pass about a million self-storage places, which along with the limitless car lots, cannot fail to lead a visitor to the conclusion that people in Charlotte, and I suppose all modern people, have cars only so they can fill them with stuff which they then drive to warehouses for storage. <laughs> I pass through neighborhoods easily identifiable through signs on restaurants and roadside stores, through language and accent when I stopped for a soda or a restroom, Latino, then Asian, then African American. Then as I closed in toward town, manufacturing plants stopped being empty and started turning into upscale living and shopping developments. And by the time I could get a glimpse of downtown, I was in neighborhoods that took serious coin to inhabit. 
If you walked a block off the main drag, you could see that one or two of the old mill houses remained, but almost everything else was a teardown, replaced by the three-story gentrifying postmodern, occupying every square inch of land it was legal to occupy. Plenty of nice stores and bars accompany those neighborhoods, often, as I said, in one-time industrial buildings. Atherton Mill, for example, housed the Big Ben British restaurant and pub, expensive shops for spices and coffee, and a Warby Parker. Once I got into downtown, it was like the Peterson's Guide to the Ecosystems of the Big Cities. Big steel and glass skyscrapers? Check. Seven. Sports stadium? Check. Three. Minor league baseball, pro football, and pro basketball. Adorable mini park? Check one with a literary theme, and for some reason, spitting fish. Then there was trade and try on, and though no Catawba king greeted me, I had been well treated by the Catawbas already. Regarding Seneca raiding parties, I had no worries. Cars, however, kept me busy. Okay, so you, you're walking down Tryon Street and you're with your backpack, I guess? Or By that point, a lot of times I would have a knapsack because as since I was dropping my car somewhere, I would drop, if I was going to camp somewhere, I would drop a tent where I planned to camp so I didn't have to carry. So I was just carrying a knapsack with water, maps, uh, phone, lenses, uh, and uh, water and little. Yeah, yeah. and know, so an what, what you were seeing, I mean, it's so foreign to what he would have seen at that time. In fact, the Charlotte Museum of History here, they have a diorama. You can go look at it. Um, the center of downtown, or what are we supposed to call it? Uptown Charlotte now. It, it had, you know, the courthouse there and a few buildings along the way. But now... And that, don't forget, is seven that wasn't years even there after Lawson. Right. It was it, just it was a just path. A, it was just a path. Right. Okay, all right. He wouldn't have known what he was looking at. Did you know what you were looking at when you walked through downtown Charlotte? Well, do you know I have seen skyscrapers before? Have you? I'm yeah. A, yeah. I widely traveled. <laughs> and um, yes, and it was... In many ways, but it had to be satisfying. jarring after what you've been walking through for jarring months. and yet satisfying because yeah. it's like, okay, home, I get how this ecosystem works. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> there are traffic lights that might protect me from the cars. You know, usually I was jumping out of the way of lumber trucks. And um, so it's like, you know, I grew up in Cleveland, I live in Raleigh. This is this is my home turf when it's sidewalks and traffic lights and cars with horns that will that might not run you over on purpose that's a terrific thing so yes of course it's it's jarring when you when you walk in from the from the bush as it were but even that is kind of satisfying where first you're walking alongside a two lane and you know walking on the shoulder of the road because there's no place for you to walk and it's basically just you and whatever birds are out mm. and squirrels and then you start to see cars. You see cars in little pulses of three or four, which I figured out is because there's a traffic light somewhere. And then a few of them come through. And then, then you would start to see more and more cars. And then you would see the subdivisions with the crazy names. And then you would get through the subdivisions. And then you were in town. But, I, I, you know, we're going to talk about the title of the book now for a second, A Delicious Country. And, and Lawson saw what he saw and talked about that. You probably wouldn't give that description to the center trade and trying if you're writing the book title for what you saw there but it would you what how would you title your journey um any differently than lawson or would it be the same boy i don't know i'm gonna have to think about that right. i'm not gonna leave to a conclusion but right um many people would look at trade and try and, and call that delicious that's what they want that's what they love and there's nothing wrong with a city i'm major in favor of cities but i you know once you're half a mile away from trade and try and you are in sprawl it's not a it's not a trout stream That's, and nobody's you know. going to call that delicious nobody's going to call that all right read on page 145 because this is lawson talking about the beauty of the country it's from the chapter titled a delicious country as the piedmont's higher hills and the thousand foot range diminished to rolling lawson said of this portion of the trail we passed through a delicate rich soil this day no great hills, but pretty risings and levels, which made a beautiful country. Hear, hear, Mr. Lawson. I never stopped marveling at the rolling landscape, hills to gently climb, then gracefully descend, covered with green meadows, omnipresent white and silver barns, and those neat farms. It was walking through country like this that caused Lawson to say, we passed through a delicious country, none that I ever saw exceeds it.
of the beautiful hilly country he traverses a little farther along, Lawson says simply, the savages do indeed still possess the flower of Carolina, the English enjoying only the fag end of that fine country. In my journals, I see I complained of the heat, but it was July in North Carolina. To do so was simply to accommodate reality. My camera recorded only and constantly breathtaking rural beauty. It was like walking through a Thomas Cole gallery. And you took a lot of pictures on your journey, right? I took a lot of pictures. Yeah. You may check me out on Instagram <laughs> and see for yourself. Um, any any pictures that you've got that are hanging uh, in your study or where you write books that, that speak to you the most about this journey? There, the, the picture that speaks to me the most, the most powerful image that I took was of uh, the passage that I read about the small towns dying. Uh, follows a passage about having found one of the, probably the most common thing that I saw during my walk, apart from uh, lumber trucks that wanted to run me over, was little houses by the side of the road collapsing and falling apart. And I would, would photograph them and I would go inside and poke around and there was one that I went into that was a two-story house and it was just heartbreaking. The 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 shell of the life that had once been in that house and i took a, a an image of that that i'm very touched by still to this day so this is a book that uh, you can pick up in different places and read uh, different aspects of your journey um, we can't possibly cover everything on this one hour podcast of what you did on this journey but like all good uh, adventures this one uh, did come to an end, and you had some reflections on it uh, on page 217 of the book. I'd like you to read that, if you would, please. I could go on. Lawson, from list to description to documenting the cultures he witnessed, gives us a glimpse into what it would have looked like, what it would have felt like to walk around in the last moments of the 17th century and the first decade of the 18th. I have tried by walking through highway underpasses and eating at lunch counters and talking to everyone I met to give a glimpse of the second decade of the 21st. That may be all one can do. That may be all there is to say. But not to amuse my readers any longer with the encomium of Carolina, Lawson says in his book at the end of his introductory throat clearing, I refer him to my journal and other more particular descriptions of that country and its inhabitants, which they will find after the natural history thereof, in which I have been very exact. He was as exact as he could be. We share what we have, and then we stop talking. Scott, you, you've done something similar. You've written this book about your journey. You've compared what you saw to what Lawson saw. But then you've got all these other, you can call them journals, I guess blogs are kind of like a journal. Right, <laughs> sure. You've got a blog and it's on your website. Uh, you've got uh, the Instagram photos that people can look at. Um, but you are still talking about it, right? Try and stop me. <laughs> <laughs> which which, which kind of leads into our Writer's Life segment I like to do on the podcast. And we're going to open it up to questions from the audience. Scott, when did you first know that you wanted to be a writer? Uh, I I can remember wanting to be a writer at age four, four, literally. I mean, I remember going out behind the house and scribbling little things down. And, and it wasn't until I started doing the job that I found out what a joy it was to have people entrust you with their stories and share those stories. That's an incredible, an incredible thing. So did you have books uh, in your life growing up? Were you surrounded by books? Yes. Um, we were a family of readers. In fact, I, I saw a study once that said, they said the thing that most strongly um, correlates with whether someone grows up to be a reader and writer is whether you have books, magazines, newspapers floating around your house. And my kids basically have to dig themselves out of ours. So in the opening, uh, I mentioned that you've written on everything from the death penalty to bikini waxing, from NASCAR racing to the stealth bomber, and now John Lawson in this trip. I guess that you are the kind of guy that gets obsessed with a topic. Um, could you talk a moment about how obsession with content is important to a writer and how you used it to guide your work? Oh, that's a great uh, perspective. I, I think that if you're not obsessed with it, don't write a book about it. 
You know, that's, I beg you, do not write a book out of it. We are not because running out of books. if you're not obsessed, the reader's not going to be obsessed, right? right? If, yeah. if you don't, if you can live without the book, trust me, everybody else can. So, yeah. you know, if, if you need to write a book, by definition, the whole world has been getting along just fine without that book so far. So you better be obsessed with something before you decide you're going to take and write a book about it. What, what do you enjoy most about the writing process and what frustrates you? in that process? Um, what I enjoy most about it, I'm one of those rare writers who enjoys everything about it. Everything. People say, oh, I don't like writing, but I like having written. And I say, then you're in the wrong job. <laughs> because I never hear a, a physician say, you know, I don't like treating patients, but I love having treated them. That's not a doctor I would go to, <laughs> do you know? And I, I like sitting there and typing. I like wrestling with it. I even try to find a time trying to find a way to like the the weeks and months in a project like this when it is just ineradicably stuck and you go out day after day to this failed enterprise something that you know in your spirit is the end of you and you keep going out there and spending days literally weeping so so were you making notes uh are we actually writing uh, chapters along the way when things came to you that you saw or, we, or did you record them in a journal and then come back later and and put them down on paper well as i was walking along you know i never do not have a notebook with me those of you who wish to be writers and i would be walking along with one kind of uh notepad or or other as I walked, I was like a like a high school sophomore's idea of a poet, you know, like, <laughs> just walking around and jotting things down. And um, then I would, you know, as I say, Lawson took his journey in 1700 and 1701, and his book came out in 1709. I, meanwhile, was updating my Instagram feed from my kayak and writing blog posts from uh, picnic tables in parks. So then when it came time to write the book, which was part of the plan from, from the drop, I went through all the blogs and went through all my notes and then sat and thought about it. And then I went away from all of those things and wrote down all the things that I thought I wanted to cover in the book to make sure that I, I created a book that made sense rather than just rewrote the blogs. Scott, fill in the blank. I write because because I cannot not write. Yeah. Um, that's, and I suspect most writers would tell I've you the heard same that. Thing. I've heard that. Yeah. That's writing is what I do. Writing is my, it's the thing that I do. Do you, do you think you were eating anything that people ate then? That's a great question. At one time, Instagrammed a picture of like one of those enormous Diet Cokes and bags of chips that I would buy. And you know, I wrote in this sort of like 1700 dialect, like the natives around here drink this delicious substance <laughs> with bubbles in it that gives you energy. One thing I did eat that they ate was barbecue. They talk about, Lawson talks about barbecue and he talks about the Indian woman shredding the, it sounds like the barbecue that you and I had yesterday. And it's amazing that certain things just don't change. So in your book, you address a lot of the economic issues plaguing the South, especially the rural South, and you approach it from a very uh, not condescending place. Uh, I just wanted to hear your thoughts. A reporter for Vox recently said, I spent a lot of my vacation driving around rural areas through NC, Kentucky, and Tennessee. My impression, horrible land use, bland, ticky-tacky strip mall architecture, and economic decay. I feel compassion for those people, but I have zero time for romanticism about U.S. rural life. Thoughts? Oh, gracious, I read that too. And there has been a great deal, as you can well imagine, of discussion um, on Twitter where one discusses things nowadays. I think this is really a tone of voice thing that in the first place, I've been clear from the start, this is my home, this is where I live. This isn't those people, this is these people. I'm one of these people. I married a native here. I'm, you know, and I'm fighting for this state like crazy. You know, one of the discussions I, I describe in the book is while I was out on this project, um, Dylan Roof killed all those people in Charleston. And the Confederate flag became an enormous issue. And I was coming through Salisbury 
at the time. And I won't go deeply into it, but I had a long conversation. The, the entire historical uh, infrastructure of, Charles, uh, of uh, Salisbury came out and treated me like a prince, which I am, obviously, for <laughs> days. And then I was, I was walking out of town. I talked to two guys sitting on the porch, two African-American guys. And they were like, before you leave, don't, don't forget the hanging tree. The hanging tree. Nobody in white Salisbury mentioned that to me, but I heard about it from the black community in a quick second. So that's important to remember. And then I was walking by a, 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 a motorcycle repair shop where with a bunch of big Confederate flags hanging and there was a little sign on the, on the porch that said, want to start something? I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> and I just kind of walked by. And then I got to the next town. I was like, Hewler, if you're not going to talk to that guy, why are you out here? What is your point? And so I drove back there and I kind of pulled up and I was like taking my pictures. And the guy comes out of the door and he's like, can I help you? I was like, well, uh, hi, I'm uh, just, he's like, you all right? Because why don't you park in here? And so I said, you mind if I take a couple of pictures? Of course. What's up? I said, well, Confederate flag. Okay, so we started talking. And just like my conversation with Peggy Scott, this was one of the great conversations of my life. Did I change this guy's mind? Spoiler alert, no, you know? But, you know, and I was able to say to him, you know, we were talking back and forth, back and forth. I see it as heritage, blah, blah. And, you know, I said, you understand that an enormous portion of the world sees it as a symbol of violence and hatred, right? Well, I feel bad about that. And I said, so I made a gesture to him. And I won't make it here, but I made a gesture that used one finger. And I said, what if I made that gesture and waved it around your face? Would that offend you? And he said, well, yeah. And I said, what if I told you that that was not a gesture of hostility and hatred, but it was a gesture indicating that I'm worried about your prostate health and I think you should get a digital exam. <laughs> and he kind of laughed a minute. And then we kept talking. He didn't take down his flag, you know, but we talked to each other and I told him, I was, you know, I was able to say, I didn't say this BS, but I was able to say how you tell me that you perceive this symbol is not how an enormous portion of the world perceives it and you're displaying it in this way. You know, I'm not going to tell you it's harmful, but it's harmful. And, you know, what can you do? You talk, but did I treat him like he was, you know, did I treat him like those people? No, I didn't. He's us people, and we're all us people. And, and Scott, you bring the book um, to a close with a scene um, where the descendants of the Tuscaroras and the descendants of the early settlers are gathered together. Um, talk about that a second. Well, that's... It was a wonderful thing where down at uh, in Grifton, if any of you have been to Grifton and you should go, they have John Lawson Legacy Days. I'll be there this year. Surprise. And um, one year uh, they had uh, some uh, descendants of the Tuscarora come and they, some, you know, the guy dressed as Lawson and one of the descendants of the Tuscarora, we all talked this, took this walk up a, uh, a, a trail to the spot on the Contentnia where they think is probably where the war party was that that found that Lawson and his friends stumbled into and they killed Lawson. And they basically put a wreath down and they said something in the nature of let's all try to be friends. You know, and it was a it was a moment of great peacefulness. I thought it was this it's been many, many years and Tuscarora and the majority population, and we all need each other now. We're in desperate need of each other now. And there's, my God, the mistakes we've made. My God, the problems we have to solve. But problem one is if we can't work together, we can't solve nothing, right? So. And the last thing you did as we bring this podcast to a close today, the last thing you did at that ceremony was to take a picture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's. That's, uh, I loved ending the book that way. I loved using images 
to go along with my text. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it's a well, great book. Well, Scott, you, you presented a, a great image uh, for us through this book, um, sort of bringing to life the story that's in this book from the uh, 1700, uh, but giving another spin to it, something, you know, in a modern day, because you can't understand the future without understanding the past, right? Absolutely. Scott, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It was absolutely my pleasure. And thank everyone for coming out. Yeah, and thank you. And let's, let's thank Scott for being here. Let's give him a hand. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we have Barbara Johnson and Roger Kohlberg. Um, they are two award-winning writers of the Charlotte Writers Club writing contests. Barbara Johnson uh, for her nonfiction work and Roger Kohlberg for his short stories. We start with Roger reading his award-winning piece called At the Pond, where the main characters are the animals. Barbara's first read is from her memoir in progress, an excerpt from her award-winning piece Five Lies, about a young Barbara whose father won't buy her the shoes she needs for school. Contest judge Michael Chitwood called it a rich and wonderfully detailed account of the pain and joy of innocent belief. They read several other pieces uh, during the show. We talk about uh, their writing, including talking about Barbara Johnson growing up in a sharecropping family uh, and being one of ten children and then uh, being the only to uh, go to college. For periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors, please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We promise not to spam you because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an ebook complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our five sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>